Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. We have a tendency to sort people into categories. They're kind or mean, smart or dumb, good or evil. But that kind of binary thinking can be limiting. So much of life exists in the gray areas between. And so do people. Liz Carmichael is a prime example. She was put on a pedestal when people thought she was a success. But when it all came crashing down, there was no nuance in the discussions about her. She was a villain, plain and simple. But the truth is, Liz was a woman with both admirable and questionable qualities. Yes, she was a con artist. Yes, she was a criminal. But she was also a mother, a wife, and a successful businesswoman. And she didn't deserve the treatment she got. Welcome to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. History has seen its fair share of women in trouble with the law, but whether or not they were all criminals is sometimes open to interpretation. This is the show where we cover the full spectrum of women behaving badly. Last week, we met Liz Carmichael, a fraudster on the run from the FBI. We learned how she bounced from city to city until she eventually settled in Los Angeles. There, she made a name for herself by promising to revolutionize the auto industry with a three-wheeled car. Today, we'll explore how everything went so wrong for Liz. We'll follow along as skeptics dig into her past and her present. And when her fraud is exposed for the whole world to see, Liz is faced with a choice. She can run again, or she can stand and fight. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Charles Dickens once wrote, It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. 
And honestly, he could have been writing about the beginning of 1975, at least when it came to Liz Carmichael. The 47-year-old was a household name. She graced the cover of magazines and newspapers across the country. People looked up to her. She was a wildly successful businesswoman in an age where those were few and far between. Some even dared to call her an icon. But behind closed doors, it was a different story. The three-wheeled car that Liz was attempting to manufacture, the Dale, turned out to be an engineering nightmare. Its recent test drive had failed miserably. As a result, Liz was losing investors left and right. But despite the production pitfalls, she stuck to her promise that the Dale would be on the market within six months. She just had to find a way to stick to that pledge. Otherwise, she'd be committing fraud. You see, Liz's company, the 20th Century Motor Car Corporation, had been collecting deposits for the Dale. Assuming she had the proper permits, that was all fine and good. After all, customers are allowed to pre-order a car. However, that money had to go into an escrow account where it would stay until the buyers received their vehicle. But there were no permits. There was no escrow account. All the down payments were being funneled directly back into the company, which meant that if Liz didn't produce a car as promised, she'd be on the line for millions of dollars. And yet, she kept on selling. Why? Well, we can't know what was going on in Liz's head at the time. Did she know she was defrauding the public but thought she could get away with it? Or did she truly believe the car was still viable? Either way, she was definitely stretching the truth. Before we continue with Liz's psychology, please note that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. According to researcher Laura E. Page, it's possible to believe our own lies. In fact, it takes as little as 45 minutes after making a false statement for us to commit it to memory and consider it true. This is because the part of the brain we use to lie is the same one we rely on for working memory. According to Page, lying can actually alter memory to the point where it feels as real as the truth. So although Liz was a con artist with a history of swindling people, it's entirely possible that she believed her own story. After all, she'd repeated the lies so many times, they probably felt real to her. Besides, believing her own hype might have made it easier to deal with the amount of pressure she was under. And let's be real, it was a lot. It wasn't just the public clamoring for updates either. In January of 1975, Liz got word that a securities investigator was coming to her company's headquarters that month. They wanted to look through her books and make sure everything was above board. Liz wasn't stoked about someone snooping around. She claimed she had nothing to hide, but at the same time, she was a libertarian, which meant she didn't believe in the government, and she especially didn't want them getting in her way. Not that she had much choice in the matter, and besides, she wasn't going to be there when the investigator came by. She had plans in Texas, where she was hoping to open a new production facility for the Dale. She was feeling the pressure in California and hoped she'd have more freedom in a less regulated state. So on January 22nd, Liz packed a bag and boarded her flight to Dallas. But she left behind her two bodyguards, 37-year-old William Miller and 47-year-old Jack Oliver. 
Having worked closely with Liz, they were aware how unhappy she was about the government meddling in her business. It seems that both men wanted to help, but they were about to make things so much worse. Quick sidebar, Miller and Oliver weren't any old bodyguards. The two were former cellmates at San Quentin, so they probably weren't strangers to using violence as a means to an end. Miller in particular wanted to solve Liz's problem for her. His solution? To assassinate the government's investigator. At least, that's what Oliver said later, and he couldn't believe what he was hearing. He apparently tried to persuade Miller that it was a bad idea, but the two butted heads, and the argument got heated quickly. Right there in the office, one of the men drew a gun. They wrestled, and then suddenly, the gun went off four times. People ducked, diving under desks and running into offices. A moment later, as the dust cleared, Oliver stood over Miller's dead body. Chaos erupted. In the offices, there was concern and confusion. No one really knew what had just gone down. And as news trickled to the outside world, there was even more uncertainty. The press knew someone had been shot inside 20th Century Motor, but they had no idea who the victim was or who pulled the trigger. Slowly, the truth came out about what happened. Still in Dallas, Liz probably would have liked for the story to go away after that. She didn't need any bad press causing her more headaches. But Miller's death seemed to open the floodgates. Suddenly, everyone was taking a harder look at Liz Carmichael and her operation. The full court press was led by none other than KABC reporter Dick Carlson. He'd always had a skeptical attitude toward Liz, and the mysterious death at her company headquarters only added fuel to his fire. He started asking questions. Why did Liz have bodyguards in the first place? And why didn't she take them with her to Texas? Had she, he asked, played a larger role in Miller's murder? The rest of the media followed Carlson's lead and turned on Liz. Reporters went from writing puff pieces to attack articles. They started digging into her past and realized that there were far more questions than answers. From there, the focus shifted to whether Liz was illegally selling securities and if the deal was even real. And once those stories were published, investors started clamoring for refunds. Liz did her best to ignore the drama as she hid out in Dallas. She thought she could avoid the legal issues in California and focus on building the Dale in Texas. Maybe she thought that would fix everything. At first, it seemed like it would. She got a warm reception in Dallas and started selling the Dale to a whole new market. But that quickly soured too, thanks to District Attorney Jerry Banks. He got wind of Liz's hijinks and went to inspect the Dale for himself. When he did, he found that the prototype was nothing more than a shell. There wasn't any substance to it. The press was right after all. The Dale was a complete sham. And if Liz thought she was going to get away with conning the people of Dallas like she had in Los Angeles, well, she had another thing coming. Banks worked fast to get arrest warrants before Liz could take any more pre-orders, and Liz got word that the authorities were after her, along with 10 of her company's officers. They were being targeted for conspiracy, grand theft, and fraud in the promotion and sale of the Dale. 
Liz couldn't believe it. After everything she'd survived, she was going down for this. Unless... Liz went to her co-conspirators and told them what was about to happen. Then she laid out their options. They could stay and fight, or they could run. They chose the latter. They closed all the accounts, divided up the money, then split. And just like that, Liz's dream of the Dale fizzled out. But just because the Dale story was over, that didn't mean Liz was done. With her company dissolving, Liz went back to her old, tried-and-true ways. She packed up her family in the car, and they took off in the middle of the night. Liz had gotten away with running before. She saw no reason why it'd be any different this time. Sure enough, while her accomplices were all rounded up, Liz made it all the way to Miami. She and her family hid out there for months. Back in Dallas, the police were stumped. They had no idea where to find her. They tried looking into her past for clues, but they couldn't find any official records from more than two years earlier. It was like Elizabeth Carmichael didn't exist before that. Of course, the authorities weren't going to give up that easily. They got a search warrant for Liz's Dallas home. That's where they found letters tying Liz back to Indiana and to her brother-in-law, Charles Barrett. So they went to pay Charles a visit. They wanted to know everything about Liz. And they apparently weren't above threatening Charles to get the information they were after. He buckled under their pressure. First, he told them about Liz's trans identity, which explained the lack of records. Then, he reluctantly shared letters he'd received from Liz and his sister, Vivian. The letters had a Miami return address. Bingo. But the authorities weren't the only ones uncovering Liz's history. Back in L.A., Dick Carlson was about to make the same discovery. Months earlier, he'd collected her fingerprints and sent them to a friend in the LAPD. Now, finally, his guy called with some answers. When he found out that Liz was a transgender con artist previously known by another name, he practically salivated over the news. Not only that, she was a fugitive on the run from counterfeiting charges. It was more than he could have ever dreamed of. He raced to his news desk, not bothering to run the story by his superiors. He knew he'd get pushback, but nothing was gonna stop him from reporting this scoop. Instead, he sat down, waited for the cameras to roll, and outed Liz as transgender on live TV. And he wasn't in any way respectful about it. Not that there's ever a way to be respectful while non-consensually outing someone. But he took it a step further. He didn't just paint Liz as a transgender woman who also happened to have committed fraud, conspiracy, and grand theft. He portrayed her as a manipulative con man on the run from the authorities, hiding in plain sight as a woman. And that's when the whole world went crazy. Up next, authorities catch up to Liz, but not for long. The I-5 Strangler, the Southside Dentist, the Berlin Butcher. Meet the many faces of evil in the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. 
every Monday and Thursday, take a journey through the origin, evolution, and madness of a real-life murderer, exploring the reasons why they lived to kill. Using extensive research and details you won't hear anywhere else, Serial Killers takes an in-depth look at the horrors beyond the headlines. With hundreds of episodes available to binge and new ones released weekly, get to know the killers, crimes, and cases that left an indelible stain on history. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Now, back to the story. In April of 1975, 47-year-old Liz Carmichael was hiding out in Miami with her family, avoiding charges of conspiracy, grand theft, and fraud. Meanwhile, back in L.A., reporter Dick Carlson had just outed her as a transgender woman on live TV. Liz was unaware of the hell Carlson had just unleashed on her, but her peace wouldn't last too long because the authorities were closing in. Her kids were the ones to notice the mail truck and the strange delivery van parked outside their Miami home. When they told Liz about the suspicious cars, she jumped up and bolted out the back door. Just moments later, police swarmed the house, but Liz was already gone. The cops couldn't believe it, They'd been so close, and they'd lost her again. Liz hid out for a day, but she couldn't bring herself to leave Miami. She had one weakness, and that was her family. She couldn't bear to leave them without a proper goodbye. So a day later, Liz crept back into her house. She hugged her wife and kids and promised they'd see each other again soon. But unbeknownst to them, the authorities were parked outside waiting for Liz. They suspected she might try to contact her family. They just hadn't expected it to be so soon. Once they realized Liz was inside, the cops kicked down the door again. And that was it. The jig was well and truly up. Liz was arrested and back in the hands of authorities. And given that she was a known flight risk, they weren't taking any chances. It was straight to jail for her. Despite the fact that Liz identified as a woman, she was held in the men's prison in Miami. As appalling as this was, it was to be expected. To this day, incarcerated transgender people are still forced into prisons according to the sex assigned to them at birth. 
It wasn't just prison officials who misgendered Liz either. Thanks to Carlson's outing, the press had whipped into a frenzy over her identity. Most outlets portrayed Liz as a man who was only pretending to be a woman to hide from the law. There was a lot of dead naming and implying that the name Liz Carmichael was nothing more than a criminal alias. Carlson, no doubt, was pleased that his version of the story got picked up so widely. From that point on, it was like he could take a back seat to it all. He continued to report on Liz's case, but now that he'd outed her, he felt the bulk of his work was done. He could shift his focus elsewhere, and he did. Sadly, Liz wasn't the only trans woman Carlson outed in the 70s. Meanwhile, Liz remained cooped up in the Miami prison. But after 10 days, they flew her back to LA to face the numerous charges against her. There, she was put in another male prison. Unfortunately, at the time, there were no guidelines for transgender inmates. That, of course, was a problem. As a woman in a man's prison, danger waited for Liz around every corner. She got her own cell and had a guard accompany her when she left it, but that only guaranteed so much safety. One day in March of 1976, nearly a year after her arrest, that strict procedure wasn't followed. A guard took 49-year-old Liz from her cell and escorted her to the medical wing, but then suddenly they abandoned her. She was on her own. Before she even had time to panic, something hit her in the back of the head and she fell to the floor. Her forehead hit the concrete and split open. Blood pooled everywhere blinding her so she couldn't make out her attacker. But she could feel his punches. Liz shrank in on herself, bracing against each hit until finally the assault ended. She was left curled on the floor, so severely beaten that her eyes were swollen shut. Sadly, this type of violence is common for transgender people in prison. The research on transgender people's treatments in prison is unsurprisingly pretty thin. Still, according to Vice, studies have shown that trans prisoners are disproportionately affected by assault, both by their fellow prisoners and jail officials. Trans women in particular face this issue. And if that data reflects contemporary findings, you can only imagine how bad it must have been in 1975. But Liz was a fighter, and she wasn't gonna let the rest of the world win, no matter what they put her through. Around this same time, she convinced the court to legally recognize her as a woman. She'd been forced into a male prison, but she was a woman, and she fought for the right to present that way during her trial. At a pretrial hearing on the topic, the judge asked Liz what name she was known by. She stood tall and said simply, I'm Geraldine Elizabeth Carmichael. I'm world famous. It was a moment to remember. Liz claimed her identity for the whole world to see, and the judge sided with her. He ordered that throughout the trial, she'd legally be a woman, and her correct name and pronouns would be used. It may seem like a consolation prize, but at the time, it was actually a mark of progress, albeit a small one. So when her trial began, Liz arrived in her men's jail uniform, but carried a bag with women's clothing in it. Before entering the courtroom, she went to the bathroom and changed. She came out of the stall and looked in the mirror. She straightened out her clothes, reapplied her makeup, and then 
She smiled. Finally, she felt like herself again. She was ready for her day in court. For her trial, Liz made the shocking decision to act as her own defense attorney. She didn't trust her court-appointed lawyers. The only person she believed could handle her case was herself. But she had her work cut out for her. On the other side of the courtroom was prosecutor Robert Youngdahl. He was competent and methodical. And he was dead set on nailing Liz. Still, Liz was confident she'd win. Her defense was simple. She hadn't simply taken deposits and then run off with the money. She'd genuinely tried to produce the car she'd promised her customers. She hired employees. She never even took a salary for herself. She argued if she'd really been trying to defraud people, she wouldn't have bothered with any of that nonsense. Unfortunately, what Liz didn't anticipate was that people wouldn't be able to separate the craze around her from her alleged crimes. When the jury couldn't decide if Liz had truly intended to manufacture the car, they fell back to scrutinizing her gender identity. They figured if she was a fraud herself, like the media suggested, then she was a fraud in business. And that was what they had to decide. The trial went on for nearly nine months until finally, in December of 1976, the arguments were over and it was time for the jury to make the final call. They deliberated for a week, trying to come to a unanimous decision. Everyone believed Liz was guilty, except for one woman, Mary Thayer. She kept insisting they go over the details again and again. Some of the jurors were suspicious about Mary. They wondered if she was trying to make it a hung jury. And one day around Christmas, their hunch was seemingly confirmed. You see, nearly every day, Mary wore a floor-length mink fur coat to court. But then one day, her husband picked her up, and she left the coat on the rack. Another juror reminded her about it, but Mary's husband laughed. Mary didn't own a mink coat. That was ridiculous. The other jurors in the room looked at each other. Why would a woman own a secret fur coat? Could it be that someone had bribed Mary with the fur? They were convinced Liz, or someone connected to her, was responsible. Still, they couldn't prove it, and they were going to be stuck there forever until Mary changed her mind. But then, Mary got sick and had to go to the hospital. She was quickly replaced with an alternate juror, and the group took another vote. This time, it was unanimous. On January 24, 1977, the jury came back with their verdict. They found 50-year-old Liz guilty of grand theft, conspiracy to commit grand theft, and selling securities fraudulently and without a permit. The charges came with a possible one to 10 years each. Liz was outraged. Someone had tampered with the jury, she said. Mary Thayer hadn't been that sick. She could have been back within three days, which was how much time a juror got for sick leave. But instead, she'd been dismissed and replaced with someone who'd fallen in line with the rest of the group. It was unfair, she insisted, a miscarriage of justice. But though Liz spouted her theory to the press, she couldn't prove it. And she had to face the fact that she'd been convicted. The only saving grace was that after her conviction, she was released on $50,000 bail while she went through the appeals process. 
For the next three years, she was at least able to live at home. She tried to overturn her conviction four times, but each attempt failed. To make matters worse, Vivian asked for a divorce. It was one of the worst blows of the whole thing for Liz. Vivian still had a lot of love for her wife, but she was tired of all the legal battles. It was exhausting. Liz couldn't argue with that. She had to let Vivian go, but it was the hardest thing she'd ever done. After that, Liz spiraled. If she didn't have Vivian by her side to help her through another stint in prison, she knew she wouldn't survive. So she came to a new conclusion. She simply wouldn't go back. She was due to appear in court for her final sentencing on December 3, 1980. But when the day came, Liz wasn't there. Once again, she'd gone on the run. Up next, Liz starts over one last time. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Now back to the story. In 1980, 51-year-old Liz Carmichael lost her final appeal after being convicted for charges related to her failed auto company. But instead of accepting her fate, Liz went on the run for a third time. Before she left California, Liz and her ex-wife, 35-year-old Vivian Barrett, gave their children a choice. They could go with whichever parent they chose. While Vivian didn't want to go on the run herself, she still trusted Liz. She knew she would do everything to protect their kids. We don't know the names of all of her children, but we do know that at least some of them chose to stick with Liz. Just like the first time Liz brought her family on the lam, they never stayed anywhere for too long. They went from place to place, moving from Oklahoma to Arizona to Florida, until finally they landed just outside of Austin, Texas, and Liz decided that was the place to stay. Liz chose a new name for herself. To strangers, she went by Catherine Elizabeth Johnson. To her family, she was still just Liz, but the alias meant she could start over with at least some semblance of safety. All the while, Liz and Vivian remained close. They didn't talk often, but when they did, they could chat for hours on the phone. Vivian was moving on with her life. She even got remarried, but that didn't stop Liz and Vivian from still being best friends. But then, not long after she remarried, Vivian passed away from cancer, and Liz was heartbroken. She'd never loved any other woman the way she had Vivian, and even though she'd been happy for her ex, 
Liz never truly got over losing her. Her grief was quiet, but it stayed with her for a long, long time. According to science journalist Virginia Hughes, prolonged grief can have all types of effects on individuals. On one hand, those suffering from it can feel extreme attachment to the deceased. That might seem like an obvious effect of losing someone, but in a UCLA study, women with prolonged grief showed similar brain reactions to those with an addiction. The attachment can become that strong, and it makes it nearly impossible to move on. There can also be long-term health effects, like heart problems, high blood pressure, and even cancer. For the moment, though, Liz's grief was intense enough on its own, and she had to find somewhere to channel all her energy, otherwise it was going to consume her. That bolt of inspiration came one day while driving through Austin. Liz gazed out the window and noticed vendors on the side of the street hawking flowers to passing cars. Liz's entrepreneurial spirit roared alive for the first time in years. She watched the vendors and thought to herself, she could do better. And so she formed a plan. She'd buy wholesale flowers, then employ people to stand on every street corner in the city and sell them. She'd monopolize the niche industry. Compared to the Dale, it was a simple business model and came with far less pressure to perform. But Liz still loved it. It gave her a purpose again and distracted her from her grief. She set up a home office where she could always be found on the phone negotiating with distributors or planning routes and figuring out logistics. And as she found success, she wanted the business to grow. She got the whole family involved, and they moved into a four-acre lot with five mobile homes. Liz even gave housing to some of her employees who didn't have anywhere else to live. While some looked down their nose at Liz, running her business almost entirely off of unhoused people, her employees loved her. Liz gave a lot of them a second chance at life. And for a while, it all worked out. Liz had her family, a thriving business, and a fresh start. But then, on April 5, 1989, nearly eight years after she fled California, that all changed. That evening, 62-year-old Liz and her family were gathered in their living room when an episode of Unsolved Mysteries came on the TV. They settled in and watched the first segment on a bitter dispute between two rival restaurateurs that ended in a murder. Then host Robert Stack switched gears. The next case was about Liz. The whole family watched in a sort of daze. They'd been in hiding for so long, they'd fallen into a false sense of security. They thought, Liz most of all, that they were free and clear. But now, Liz listened as her past was dredged up. Her company, the Dale, her dead name, the whole ordeal splashed across television screens once more. The episode ended with a hotline number that anyone could call if they'd seen Liz. It was only a matter of hours before a woman phoned in with a tip. She'd recognized Liz and told the authorities that she was living as Katherine Johnson, a florist outside of Austin. It didn't take long before the cops showed up at her mobile home and arrested Liz. 
At that point, she was 62 years old and tired of running. She didn't fight. She just wanted to get it over with. She was extradited back to California, where she finally had to face sentencing after all those years. A judge gave her 32 months, and she was shipped off to the California State Men's Prison at Vacaville. All things considered, it wasn't a long incarceration, and with good behavior, she'd be out even earlier. So Liz kept her head down and bided her time, waiting until the day she was free again. She managed to get through her sentence without much incident, although it couldn't have been a walk in the park. Knowing what she went through the last time she was behind bars, I'm almost certain this stint involved similar treatment. Eventually, though, her release date came. On September 2nd, 1991, after only 18 months in prison, 64-year-old Liz walked out the front gates and got on a bus for Austin. Once she returned to Texas, Liz rejoined the flower business. It was as if she'd never even left. She reclaimed the relative peace she'd found there earlier for a while. But about nine years later, a dogged journalist named Mark Lisheron moved to Austin, and he was about to change everything. Just as Liz had done when she arrived, Lisheron drove through the city and noticed flower vendors. But this time, he was seeing Liz's sellers, and they were everywhere, literally every corner, it seemed. And he was curious. He wanted to know what their story was. So he went into reporter mode. He convinced one seller to let him tag along so he could write a piece about a day in the life of a flower vendor. That's how Lisheron learned the whole operation was run by a woman named Liz Carmichael. Of course, given that it was the year 2000, it wasn't as easy to find information about Liz's past on the internet. But Lisheron did his due diligence all the same. So once again, Liz had a reporter rooting around through her past. Lisheron contacted another local florist who was pissed and possibly jealous of Liz's success. They accused her of not having proper licenses or permits, and they added there was something off about Liz. Lisheron was intrigued, so he reached out to an old friend who happened to be an assistant DA in Los Angeles. He wanted to run a criminal background search on this mysterious woman. But he didn't need to. The DA recognized Liz's name instantly and told Lisheron all about her. Her past, her gender identity, the Dale, all of it. Lisheron couldn't believe his luck. He'd just scored the story of the year. Sadly, he didn't give any thought to what his article might mean for Liz. He only saw how it could benefit him. And so, Lisheron published his story. In it, he claimed that Liz wasn't paying her taxes and that she ran her business off the backs of unhoused people without proper permits or licenses. Whether Lisheron's depiction was correct or not, the article painted Liz as an evil person, taking advantage of poor people. As a result, her floral business took a huge hit. But even worse, now everyone in Austin knew about her past. And the city didn't take kindly to it. Most people saw Liz as a stain on the community. They wanted her gone. 
Liz was furious. All she'd wanted was a peaceful life for her last years. Instead, she had yet another reporter who didn't understand her, publishing stories about her without her consent for his own personal gain. It wouldn't be surprising if Liz thought about running away and starting over again. But even if the thought crossed her mind, Liz was 73 by that stage. Running wasn't quite so easy anymore. So she stayed in Austin and tried to make the most of it. She spent time with her growing family. She was now a grandmother and her grandkids loved her as much as her own kids did. But unbeknownst to all of them, Liz's days were numbered. In the last years of her life, Liz lived with diabetes and battled melanoma of the nose. One day in 2004, 77-year-old Liz didn't wake up. She was rushed to the hospital, but there was nothing that could be done. According to her daughter, she was in a diabetic coma. She passed later that day. Liz's family donated her body to science. They thought she would have liked that. Maybe she'd be able to help future generations of transgender people. After that, her kids reportedly all went their separate ways. Liz had been the one keeping them all together. Without her, there was no glue. But even as the pieces of her family spun off in different directions, Liz's legacy remained. Though there's been little thoughtful attention given to the truth of her story. Despite everything said about her, Liz was proud of her work on the Dale. She even kept a photo of the bright yellow three-wheeled car in her house, as if it were another member of the family. No matter what people thought, in her heart, Liz truly believed that she could have changed the world. That doesn't change the fact that Liz did commit fraud, whatever she believed in her heart. However, the way she was vilified in the media blew her case out of proportion, turning it into something else entirely. For decades, her life was overshadowed by the depiction of her in the press. After that, all people could see was a con artist who used her identity to hide in plain sight. But that's not true at all. Liz's life was filled with nuance, and she deserves to be remembered for both her faults and her strengths. She was a criminal, she was a trans woman, she was a fugitive, she was a survivor. But you know what? She can be all that and more. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Liz Carmichael, amongst the many sources we used, we found HBO's documentary series, The Lady and the Dale, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. 
Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Alex Burns, with writing assistance by Sarah Batchelor and Joel Callen, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Their names have become larger than life. Their crimes, some of the most heinous in history. Their stories, examined each week on the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Every Monday and Thursday, journey past the headlines and into the minds and motives of the murderers who forever changed the face of history. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Listen free only on Spotify.